Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about global oncology with Dr. Saad Omer. Dr. Omer is the Harvey and Kate Cushing Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about global oncology with Dr. Saad Omer. Dr. Omer is the Harvey and Kate Cushing Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Saad, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and about what it is you do. I'm the director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist who has had the privilege of working in multiple countries and uh, have done studies in multiple places, uh, both in the U.S. and outside the U.S. Um, My focus, my own work, uh, is focused on um, infectious diseases. Um, and as you know, that there are uh, several cancers now uh, that have uh, an association with uh, infectious agents. And then the most prominent one of them is the HPV uh, or human papilloma virus uh, association uh, with cervical cancer. So some of my work has focused on HPV vaccines. Uh, but my, I, you know, I work broadly on all sorts of infectious diseases. So let's talk a little bit about um, kind of the global implications for cancer. Just recently, we heard uh, in the news uh, that a lot of the global work uh, that had been done and a lot of the global strides that had been made in terms of HIV, malaria, and TB took a bit of a hit during the pandemic. And a number of world leaders are now really refocusing their efforts on shoring up um, Uh, those efforts once again. Can you tell us a little bit about the impact of uh, the pandemic on on cancer worldwide? Yeah, so um, one one of the things uh, that's concerning about cancer is um, how patchy our understanding is uh, with the true nature of disruptions uh, that happened during the pandemic. And it wasn't just um, due to shelter in place or shutdown orders. They were very short-lived in most of the world. Uh, they, there has been an ongoing disruption in um, screening um, and um, and treatment of, of cancer, uh, but the, the data are a bit patchy. And then that's one of those things where you know where whenever you're able to measure, especially in low-resource settings, you find that there has been um, a disruption in essential services, uh, disruption in screening, which was already not stellar in very in a lot of low-resource settings. Um, and uh, we do not know the full scale of the, of the impact. Um, and so, you know, that's one side in terms of screening and treatment. And, and, uh, but on, on the prevention side, on, uh, in terms of the vaccination side, um, HPV vaccine has taken a huge hit in terms of the delay in introduction in new countries and also decline in coverage uh, of the vaccine. Um, and, and, and that 
is going to have long-term consequences. So, Saad, you know, when we think about the HPV vaccine, one of the things is that even in the U.S., um, we we know that uh, we've seen cervical cancer rates decline as uh, there has been more of an uptake in vaccine here, but it's still not 100%. And, um, you know, one can only imagine that in low to middle income countries, the uptake rate even at baseline, forgetting about the impact of the pandemic and everything else, may have been lower than it has been in the U.S. Can you talk a little bit about um, that and about what are the ideologic factors that play into that? I mean, is cost an issue, cultural issues, um, access? Uh, what what are the issues and, and what have we seen in terms of uh, HPV vaccine worldwide? So the, the, the situation with the HPV vaccine introduction and uptake um, and, and now what we are calling backsliding um, is a little bit nuanced. So initially, um, you know, as usual, the vaccine was initially introduced in high-income countries and the and, and U.S. was one of the earliest countries where uh, it was introduced. Uh, but very quickly, entities like Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, um, and full disclosure, I'm on, on their board, um, which is an entity that is um, uh, that brings together um, governments and government funding, uh, as well as private donations, large private donations from entities like the Gates Foundation, to provide access to life-saving vaccines around the world. So Gavi got involved and prioritized as part of their uh, you know, current strategy that was uh, supposed to be implemented a couple of years ago, a few years ago, starting a few years ago, um, right before the pandemic, um, and to increase access to the vaccine. A couple of things happened. There was a shortage in supply and production. Um, and so that impacted the speed of introduction. Uh, but also the early pilots uh, uh, in countries like India suffered from uh, misinformation and disinformation and misunderstanding and um, and and some kind of uh, intentional pushback from some uh, circles and and so with that legacy we had we were going we went into as the global community into the pandemic where these problems were compounded by the fact that you can't uh, introduce new vaccines in more and more countries. Uh, during the vac uh, pandemic, which are not COVID-19 because everyone was focusing on COVID or and just barely maintaining routine immunization of existing vaccines. But also there was a backsliding. There was a reduction uh, in, um, in in this vaccination. And, and so for HPV vaccine, the um, vaccination rates declined, even in the few countries where it was available, by 15%, um, by 15 percentage points um, where... Um, this was, uh, or actually 15% decline, where, uh, where you know, um, uh, these vaccines were already being used. But, but we need to remember that two-thirds of girls, uh, if you're just uh, focusing on girls and, and women, um, live in countries without HPV vaccine. And, and the pandemic has heard this new introduction in these countries of HPV vaccine. Um, and so, therefore... Um, the coverage of this cancer-preventing vaccine is barely 12% around the world. Um, and so this is concerning. 
You know, one of the things that you mentioned is is really a touch point, and that is that when the HPV vaccine was initially introduced, uh, particularly in India, there was a lot of misinformation around that, and that was due to a, a number of a number of things. But you know, a, a lot of these. Um, kind of scary stories and, and cultural issues and uh, disinformation kind of made it out into the media. And it was thought that that really played a role in terms of uh, reducing the uptake of that vaccine. I wonder now that we've seen kind of the same misinformation with COVID. And I'm hoping that a lot of that has been dispelled, whether you anticipate that now uh HPV vaccine might be able to gain hold again um, after we've kind of dispelled a lot of the myths around vaccines or whether you think the HPV vaccine holds a special place because part of the misinformation had to do with how the clinical trials were run and part of the misinformation had to do with, um, you know, sexual practices and so on. So what do you think is going to be the state of affairs uh, for vaccination rates going forward? Do you think that our our experience now with a COVID vaccine and seeing how effective it was uh, will help HPV vaccines? Or do you think uh, that HPV is still going to to be hit pretty hard in terms of getting public uptake? Look, there was um, a bit of a naivete uh, by on the part of global public health community uh, when this vaccine was initially introduced. So, so it was introduced in pilots, you know, starting in India and other places. Uh, and the naivete was that the assumption was uh, if you just brought the vaccine closer to people, then they will vaccinate. Uh, it wasn't proactively paired with an educational and informational component of that introduction program. Uh, it, you know, um, the public health authorities and entities that were uh, introducing this vaccine in many parts of the world did not pair that with uh, a behavioral response um, to this, and they did not anticipate proactively that there will be um, misunderstandings and misinformation and disinformation. And so, first of all, there is a legacy of that. But going forward, I think it would be incredibly uh, naive again if we don't uh, move forward with the sort of the comprehensive um, behavioral response. If we do that, uh, and we do that with uh, respect to communities that have questions um, and answer them and make uh, an effort to make sure that people are empowered with information, but also proactively use behavioral science to make sure that the vaccines are promoted appropriately and so on and so forth, I think we can make a dent uh, in uh, preventing this disease, this horrible disease through vaccination. Um, but it's not going to happen on cruise control. It will require efforts from various partners, and it will require thoughtfulness, and it will require, frankly, activism uh, from groups that are impacted by by you know H HPV and most importantly cervical cancer, and so so that kind of a you know an approach where you are not just deploying it from a technical side, but also you have a community engagement component, you have a behavioral science component to it, but also um, activism from from communities who should be 
um, you know, and interest groups uh, who want to prevent cancer. And so I think it will take uh, an all hands, it will be an all hands on deck situation as we expand um, vaccination against HPV. And, and that that sounds right. Um, but that especially will play where the HPV vaccine is already available. What about the communities where it's not available? Why isn't it available? Why is it that two-thirds of women uh, are living in countries where the HPV vaccine is not available? Is cost an issue? Is Gavi uh, not providing it? Uh, tell us more about what we can do to expand access to this vaccine worldwide, because it seems that it's incredibly effective against a malignancy that nobody wants to get. Um, we should be able to get the world's people, not just women, but uh, boys and girls now, uh, vaccine are uh, vaccinated. Yeah, that's 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 a really good question. So it was a, an issue. Cost was an issue, um, uh, but not anymore. So Gavi has decided and had decided before the pandemic uh, to introduce this vaccine and help countries introduce. And no external country, uh, entity can introduce it on their own. It's uh, a country level decision, and it's the communities. Uh, that have to want it uh, to do this. But Gavi uh, came in and said that it will be um, a, a a priority for introduction in countries. But around that time, there was a shortage uh, of this vaccine globally. That has been eased. Now it's, uh, you know, the ball is in the court of uh, those who are responsible for implementing rather than those who are responsible for supplying and providing resources for it. Yeah, it sounds like we've heard the story of, you know, first there was a shortage and then uh, it's getting it into the communities. It sounds like this is uh, a repeat of something that we've seen with the COVID vaccine as well. We're going to pick up this story, learning more about global oncology, right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more with my guest, Dr. Saad Omer. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their liver cancer program brings together a dedicated group of specialists whose focus is determining the best personalized treatment plan for each patient. Learn more at smilocancerhospital.org. Breast cancer is one of the most common cancers in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,500 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year, but there is hope thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and the development of novel therapies to fight breast cancer. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with the disease. With screening, early detection, and a healthy lifestyle, breast cancer can be defeated. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to make innovative new treatments available to patients. Digital breast tomosynthesis or 3D mammography is also transforming breast cancer screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Saad Omer. We're talking about his work in global health and oncology, and right before the break, we were talking about 
the HPV vaccine, uh, which is incredibly effective, not only in preventing cervical cancer, but a whole host of other cancers, anal cancer, head and neck cancer. And the issues that that vaccine has faced in terms of global uptake um, and how so many women and men, quite frankly, um, who uh, get these types of cancers reside in countries where this vaccine is currently not available. Now, Saad, you know, another um, another viral etiologic agent to which we have a vaccine uh, that also is uh, related to cancers is hepatitis and HBV. Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, what is the vaccination status worldwide with hepatitis B vaccines? And is that making an impact? Yeah, so it is making an impact. Uh, we have had observational studies uh, that have shown uh, the impact of uh, hepatitis B vaccine. Several countries have introduced um, this uh, uh, vaccine in their routine immunization schedules often, um, and, and that's really helpful, often as a multivalent vaccine, often as a combination vaccine. So it's easier to deliver uh, these vaccines. Uh, you, know, it's, you know, the fewer shots you have to deliver, the, the less uh, cumbersome it is in terms of what we call cold chain, meaning keeping the vaccines at the right temperature, delivery, access, and all of that stuff. So with that inclusion and with that uh, kind of a focus uh, in several countries, we have um, uh, had um, an impact on getting this vaccine into uh, kids' arms um, you know, at a very early stage. However, there are a few things. Um, in, in several countries, it's a, a relatively uh, recent development in terms of getting high immunization rates. Um, but early indications from early adopters or countries where this vaccine was introduced um, a bit a while ago, we have seen an impact on um, cancer in incidents, et cetera. And so that's encouraging. Uh, not surprising, but you still measure, you uh, still uh, sort of assess the impact. So because it takes time uh, from infection to cancer for these kinds of uh, pathways, it, it takes time to show the impact. But there is still a, a, a lot of a big chunk of adults who are unvaccinated. So we will unfortunately see for a few years, uh, you know, that cohort uh, to go through the system. Um, and that is unfortunate, obviously. If hepatitis B vaccination is successful, one wonders about the the concept of pairing it with HPV, which has been, to my understanding, less successful in terms of getting uptake. What do you think about that concept of just saying, you know what, this is a package of vaccinations that your kids get uh, at schools or when they reach a certain certain age, and this is, you know, a community effort, and uh, this is just the way it is? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. We already package it's Hep B vaccine with childhood vaccines, and and we vaccinate earlier for Hep B, uh, whereas for hepatitis uh, for 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 HPV human human papillomavirus vaccine, we vaccinate um, uh, uh, um, these people uh, you know preteens um, at that age when you know before. Uh, puberty in certain countries, a lot of countries during teen year age, uh, you know, during their teen years. But most importantly, 
Um, there is, you could have catch-up campaigns that are combined for those two vaccines, but I think the, the current strategy of vaccinating kids earlier in life for hep B so that they're protected um, from the whole scope uh, um, of, of, of this illness, because the earlier it happens, the earlier hepatitis B infection happens, the more likely it is uh, for people to develop cancer later in life. I think that you know a little bit of a hybrid strategy would be helpful, but pairing it with other routine vaccines, what it does for Hep B is makes it routine. For HPV, I think as the adolescent vaccine platform picks up, um, we will have to and we should pair it with uh, vaccines such as meningitis vaccine, which is done in the U.S. and with some success. That if you pair it with other teen vaccines, unfortunately, in other countries, in many countries especially in low- and middle-income countries, where, by the way, the, the biggest burden of cancer is uh, that uh, there are no uh, vaccines that are given during um, teenage years. So as that portfolio expands, I think it would be helpful to uh, pair um, the HPV vaccine with that as well. Yeah. You know, and, and it brings you bring up a good point, uh, which is that the largest burden uh, of, of cancer these days is occurring in low to middle income countries. And when we look at future forecasts, it, it's thought that that's where the most uh, increase in the burden of cancer will be. You know, and there are some statistics that say that, you know, in terms of mortality, cancer claims more lives than HIV, TB, and, uh, and, and, uh, um, sorry, uh, and, and other uh, uh, issues, uh, infectious issues in low to middle income countries combined. And so, you know, one wonders, as we put more resources into the infectious elements in these low to middle income countries, what do you think should be the case for cancer? How do we increase the awareness of NGOs, of governments, of others about the growing cancer burden uh, in low to middle income countries so that it really rises to the same level as HIV and TB? Yeah, I think uh, as someone who primarily works on infectious diseases, uh, including sort of which overlaps with infectious causes for cancer, look, I am a big believer of focus on things like cancer and cardiovascular diseases in terms of our global investments um, in uh, global public health um, and, and treatment. Uh, I think the world can walk and chew gum. Uh, it, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be an either-or situation. Um, it doesn't have to be a situation where, uh, a, you know, you uh, either have to prevent mortality through malaria, which is horrible for a lot of communities in, in the world, or HIV or tuberculosis, et cetera, um, and sort of ignore cancer and cardiovascular disease. I think we can and we must and we should do that. And I, I believe uh, entities such as um, the Global Fund for TB, Malaria, and HIV that provides uh, resources uh, to low-income countries uh, through funding from the U.S. government, other developed and developing country governments, they pool their resources and uh, provide treatment uh, for these diseases. And the uh, Gavi, the Global uh, Vaccine Alliance, uh, which focuses on vaccines, a similar model, uh, are, are templates for a, a, a global cancer moonshot. Uh, 
um, both in terms of not just technology, but in terms of actually getting treatments and screening and diagnostics uh, to uh, low and middle income countries. Uh, most of the deaths, a majority of the deaths um, due to the 10 million cancer deaths uh, were in low and middle income countries in 2020. And it, the trend has remained. And in fact, there will be a higher proportion in low and middle income countries because uh, the population there is increasing. And there was a bigger disruption uh, in prevention and treatment services. And so I think um, there should be and there has to be a call for action to say that, uh, you know, communities are impacted by mortality uh, due to uh, and preventable, increasingly preventable mortality due to cancer. Um, and so, so I think we need to have that kind of an approach that we can and must and um, and must address uh, all of these issues uh, that are major causes of death and and um, and disease. Yeah, one of the issues that I think is is really difficult uh, when it comes to cancer, as opposed to HIV or malaria or TB, is is the fact that, you know, cancer is so complex, right? And uh, in terms of uh, screening, uh, we have good screening for some things, not so good screening for other things. But even if you were to screen, uh, then, you know, the treatment algorithms do require, you know, surgery and radiation and chemotherapy and immunotherapy and various biologics and all of the diagnostics that go with it. And it's not as it's not so easy, um, and, and that requires a lot of infrastructure and a lot of uh, resources. So, you know, where do you start? Uh, because this is a very complex onion to peel uh, with so many layers of issues, from poverty to education to, you know. Um, other factors uh, that makes it very difficult for people really to um, make an impact in terms of cancer care globally. Uh, absolutely correct. But global health is the art of the possible, is to look at a problem and say that this is an, an acceptable. Um, and, and to to have that, that, that somewhat Pollyannish way of thinking that all lives are created equal that inequity in access to care and treatment and screening is not acceptable. And that view is not Pollyannish. It's a, it's a, it's a way of looking at the world and saying that, uh, you know, there are certain things we, you know, not everyone has to have the latest Tesla or the latest iPhone, but health is a basic human right. And uh, this cannot continue to happen on our watch, uh, at least without an effort. And so, so when we start with that position, we look for examples of similar, seemingly unsurmountable problems. And one of the seemingly unsurmountable problem is and was HIV. I remember starting work in late 90s um, and, and on HIV in early 2000s and going to countries like Uganda and Ethiopia um, and, and, and uh, parts of India as well and seeing uh, that, uh, especially in, in, in Uganda and Ethiopia, that treatment was nowhere to be found. Um, by the mid-90s, some very good treatment options were available in the U.S. and, and high-income countries. Uh, and uh, even when we were doing studies for a lot of these patients, we were able to provide some treatment to them in the context of studies with the hope and the aim to bring those um, 
treatments through collective action to the communities we were working with, to the people we were working with. And now, um, and, and not just now, no, it's not a recent phenomenon, starting in 2005, 2004, 2005, the world has made major progress, not only in providing treatment, but also managing a complex disease like HIV. Um, and, and so therefore, um, I think these, this is a model that can be a template for cancer prevention, screening, treatment, control, uh, etc. Dr. Saad Omer is the Harvey and Kate Cushing Professor of Medicine in Infectious Diseases and Professor of Epidemiology of Microbial Diseases at the Yale School of Medicine and Director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.